Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I like our changing world. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on in the show, we'll hear about the chemical element tantalum. But first up, rats are one of nature's survivors. There are three species of introduced rats in New Zealand. And ship rats and Norway rats have made themselves right at home everywhere, from the deepest forest to inner-city suburbia. Most research about rat behaviour has been carried out in the bush, and we don't know a lot about what rats get up to in the city. That's something that Victoria University of Wellington student Henry McKenzie is trying to rectify. He's radio-tracking rats to find out how far they move. Of course, the first step in working out the home range of a suburban rat is to catch some rats. So we've got around 25 live capture traps in Roseneath right now, all baited with uh, apple and a bit of uh, hazelnut spread, which um, apparently rats love. Um, and then so it's just the a waiting game. So the traps are just in people's gardens, are they? They are, yeah. So we've, we've been lucky enough to have a bunch of participants through um, the Pecan Project, People, Cities and Nature, and, yeah, they've been kind enough to um, sort of have me in their back gardens catching rats, and they seem very sort of enthusiastic about it, which is, which is awesome. <laughs> Excellent. And I have come to join you today because you have one of the rats. Yes, we do, yeah. Subject number 22 of nickname in Larry. What kind of rat is it? He's a, he's a ship rat, around 150 grams, so sort of adult size. And a boy? Um, we haven't yet found that out. That's why we've got the, the vet... Craig to uh, come down and yeah, do that. <laughs> now, while the vet is walking in our direction, you are mixing some blue paste up in a little plastic bottle. Why and what? <laughs> so this is uh, platinum blonde hair dye, which we're using to mark the rats. So each rat is marked with a sort of unique pattern so we can identify um, each subject and then use this for capture mark recapture studies that we're doing alongside this project. What kind of pattern are you going to uh, bleach this one? Um, so he's getting two stripes, top left and top right. The hell is he? He's good. He's fully recovered. So this guy had a rough start, actually. When I found him, um, he was super cold, all huddled up, and sort of I ran back and got him on this heat pad. And he, he seems to be fairly bright, and he's taken some, some apple and some, some hazelnut spread. So, yeah, I think we're kind of good to go. 
I think the thing that we've really tried with this project is to ensure that the, we, we do look after the welfare of the individual rats because yeah. it's important for them as an individual animal but also for the project. So we want to learn as much as we can and get as much information and we want to ensure that we safely anaesthetise these animals. Henry can do the tricky part of putting the radio tracking collar on and then we can wake the rat up and um, it's been really fun working together with Henry and this is a really great way to export uh, our skills as veterinarians and wildlife and zoo veterinarians and use it in a real practical way in the field for conservation. So yeah, we're really thrilled to be a part of it. So these are my shiny new... <laughs> Uh, live capture traps. He's we joking, actually... listeners. Yeah. <laughs> They're quite old and rusty. So we have to be quite inventive with our approach as well. So we've come up and made our own induction chamber out of a uh, clear click-clack box. And then we've looked at uh, different ways of anaesthetising the rats from uh, more sophisticated approaches to quite a simple field approach, which you'll see shortly. So had you worked with rats before, Craig? I have not, actually, um, so it's been uh, an interesting project for me. I mean, obviously, my focus has been conservation. i um, been really fortunate to work with an amazing range of uh, species, including endangered wildlife like kakapo. So, yeah, in my mind, the rats, uh, you know, they've definitely sort of been public enemy number one. Strangely, through this process, in an unusual way, you do get a little bit attached to them, but... You know, hopefully the knowledge gained from this project will help with more effective trapping and um, will support native species. So we'll also be um, recording sort of gender um, and then sort of body length and tail length as well. Being a shipwreck, you expect a long tail. Yeah, 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 that's one of the identifiers, a longer tail than the body length. And then also they have much larger ears, uh, a pointier nose as well, yeah, and a lot smaller. So you've caught just ship rats, or have you caught both ship and Norway We've rats? We've caught a couple monster Norways, haven't we, Craig? Maybe about 300 grams plus. Big guys. I'm going to put some more tape over here so we can block up that. OK. Oh. So I often have to kind of resize the collars because they're, they're often too big. So how big's the transmitter itself? Pretty small. Tip of your pinky sort of thing. Yeah, and they, they don't seem to mind it at all. They seem not to notice it, which is which is good. So normally, Ellison, what you'll see is the rat will be in the live capture trap and then we'll put them into the click-clack container. And then what we do is we've got um, cotton wool balls and we've got an anaesthetic gas called isofluorine, which is soaked in the cotton wool balls, and we put that into the click-clack container and then the vapour or the gas diffuses in the container. Obviously, the rat inhales the, the gas and then falls to sleep. So that's the sound of Henry drilling an extra hole in the collar just in case it's needed. It doesn't have an antenna sticking out or is that what the collar does? So yeah, the actual, uh, the brass collar is actually the antenna. Ah, um, so there's a bit of an excess. Nice one. How long does the battery last on that thing? Uh, about a year. Yeah. Oh, so you could follow these rats for a long time. For a long time, yeah. But, you know, thankfully... My master's over in March, so, yeah. Look at it, he's actually eating in there. Yeah. He's very comfortable. Yeah, yeah. He's not stressed. We've, we've actually been really surprised by the behaviour of the rats because they've actually been remarkably relaxed and 
Uh, 99% of them, when we have uh, put the isofluorine into the chamber, have gone to sleep very uh, peacefully, um, and then they've woken up really quickly once we take the cotton wool um, out of the chamber as well. So hopefully that's the same situation with this one here today. Well, it certainly looks very relaxed there. It's having a little groom. It's been having a bit of apple. Okay, so what I'll do is I'll just open up a corner of the container. I'll put a few cotton wool balls in there, and then we'll just monitor and wait to see how the rat responds. See how they're quite inquisitive? They tend to go up to the cotton wool ball and actually sniff them. I wonder if that's a feature of urban rats who are used to things appearing constantly in their environment as opposed to something in the bush which is used to the bush being the bush and mm. um, might be a bit more scared of new things. Oh. Any thoughts, Stephen? Yeah, the urban environment's quite diverse and quite different from the forest and there's some research being done on a variety of invasive species that showed that the ones that are quite bold and inquisitive often have an advantage, yeah, especially going into new environments. So once it's sufficiently dozy, you just have to quickly... Way yeah. measure, put the collar on. Yeah, very quickly. <laughs> you can see it's actually quite fiddly. Very fiddly. Yeah, so I can feel some uh, testicles there, some so it's a boy. <laughs> Sorry, how much did that weigh, Henry? 175 grams. So he's, he's big for a ship, right? So a couple of platinum blonde stripes going on. Yeah. There'll be cameras everywhere right? in the gardens, and that's part of the reason for marking them that the stripes will show up on the trail cameras. Put them on a towel, we just monitor them. And it's already coming around. Yeah. We should start to wake up. They, they come around pretty fast, usually. So for people who don't know Wellington, Roseneath is an inner city suburb up above Oriental Bay. Why did you choose that as a suburb? Um, so that was one of our pecan sites. And I kind of shot out an email to all these people, um, and Roseneath was probably the most sort of enthusiastic of all the suburbs. Yeah, so as a suburb, it's an interesting one. Because it's steep in gullies, there's a lot of sort of rough bush in it, you know, roadside verges that are covered in scrub and trees. Yeah, and it's been quite a productive site in terms of being able to catch a number of rats. So we've caught ten rats from this area. And we, the PCAD project, Henry referred to as the People, Cities and Nature, for the last two years we've been monitoring eight different suburbs in backyards, bush reserves and kind of more open amenity spaces and we've got two sites in Miramar Peninsula, two suburbs in Miramar and six in the rest of the city and of course all this is taking place in the context of the eradication of rats and stoats from Miramar Peninsula So what do you already know about the rats in Rosny? I guess we just know there's a reasonable number of them although the numbers in the urban centres don't seem to be as high as in the bush so this year's a mast year and you might hear stories about rat numbers getting up to 80%, 90%, 100% 80%, 90%, 100% tracking rate. So far, the tracking rates in urban areas have been around 20% or lower. Mm. Yeah, the Rosnia rats tend to be a little larger than the Brooklyn rats, which is another one of our sites. I couldn't tell you why, but, um, yeah, significantly bigger rats, maybe because there's a lot more green spaces in Rosneath. Yeah, and there's a suspicion that urban rats might have much smaller home ranges than the home range of a bush rat or a rat in the bush. And so a lot of the ecology we know about rats is from the forest, and so we're trying to find out if their behaviour and their home ranges is different or their densities is different, and that can inform attempts to eradicate rats from urban centres.
So this guy's woken up fine. Um, he's quite a character. He's decided to tunnel underneath the towel, make a little hidey spot for himself. But I'm really happy with the way that he's woken up. So, yeah, go ahead and release him back to the site. Cool. So we have relocated to Roseneath. We've actually already got a rat at uh, number 47, Colin. So, so this is the second one. Interesting, yeah, 47. <laughs> bit of overlap in home ranges. It's 47 and it's Wellington so it's got a flight of stairs down, a long flight. So I guess I'll, exactly yeah. The same place. yeah, that is the plan. Oh, a very perky rat. And it was off very quickly into the undergrowth. Okay, we'll be back. <laughs> to see where it's got to. Yeah, when will we do that? In a, a week or so? Come with me? Yeah, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah, cool. It's a few days later and Henry and I have agreed to meet up actually during the day. For the first time he's going to see where the rats are during the daytime. Good morning. Morning. <laughs> this is all your radio tracking gear. This is, yeah. So you've got a receiver and so an I've aerial. Got my receiver, my Yagi antenna. Right, so normally you go tracking at night time, but we are going to do some daytime tracking. Yeah, exciting. So we're going to hopefully find some nesting sites for some of the ship rats and Norway rats. So how many rats have you got around here with radio transmitters on? Um, so we've got a total of 10 in uh, Rosneath. Yeah, these rats are taking up a big portion of my life these days. <laughs> I usually have a couple of stations... They have a um, good amount of high ground, a decent range with my with my antenna. So which one's Larry? Because you nicknamed the Larry last the rat Lazarus Larry. Rat. Yeah, um, he was number 22. Um, subjects 17, 20 and 22 are kind of fairly interesting because they're all overlapping in home ranges. I've picked up locations of them when they're within maybe 5 or 10 metres of each other, which is which is interesting. So we're at number 57. This is home of Larry the Lazarus rat. He had a pretty tough time, but he um, he managed to kind of bring it back and yeah. And he's still going. And he's still going, exactly. So I've just switched to recording on my phone because my nice lovely sound recorder is interfering with the tracking device. Um, any joy? So we've got someone, subject 22. It up. Yep, so the quiet beeping that tells us you've got a signal. So it's pretty close. We've got him again, 110 degrees. He looks like he's just just in that tree there, possibly. First sort of location for our ship rat nest. We're just going to head in for a closer look in this garden. A lot of steps in rows now. So we've just come a bit closer to the tree where we are getting the signal from that ship rat. So it's mm. hanging out in there somewhere. You talk about ship rats having a nest. Yeah. What are you looking for? They tend to be arboreal, so up in trees or in roofs. So they have sparrow-like nests that they make up using dead leaves, things like that. 
So hence that expression. (laughs) It's looking like a rat's nest. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I can't see it. Yeah, can't quite spot it yet. Hello, rat. (laughs) We're on to you. But you're doing a very good job of hiding. Yeah, unfortunately. I think that's why people go for their entire lives without necessarily even realising that they have rats in their back garden. Yeah, exactly. Because they're pretty cryptic. Yeah, pretty camouflaged, that's for sure. Just there is where I found uh, my first Norway rat um, in the compost bin. That's a good place for a rat to hang out. Yeah, lots of food. So what can you tell me about this Norway rat? What does it get up to at night? Um, so stays uh, very close to where I caught him in the compost bin. Um, got several, um, picked him up several times within, you know, a couple metres of the compost bin. Yeah, so I guess that uh, sort of urban myth about compost rats holds true. <laughs> Why go further afield if everything you need exactly. is close at home? So you're <laughs> expecting that during the daytime he's probably not that far away either. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So you've had a good sweep around, but you're not getting a signal from the Norway rat. Yeah, we're not picking up anything. Um, so you thought it might have been in the compost bin. Thoughts, yeah, but no such I luck. don't think so, yeah. <laughs> I noticed in that compost bin, though, there's a trail camera. Is that you? Yeah, that's me. Got a couple camera traps uh, around here. So it's got some dyed markings in its fur, so you can guarantee it's the correct rat. Exactly, yeah. And we've got a kind of different patterns for each of our subjects, so we can identify each individual. So this one's a stay-at-home because it's got a good food supply in the middle of its territory. We don't know where it sleeps during the day. What are the shipwrecks getting up to at night? How far afield are they roaming? So they're ranging um, a much greater distance. The uh, largest roaming shipwreck we've recorded has been um, about 30 metres. So 30 metres isn't very far. So when they're doing urban eradications, you probably need to have your traps and your bait stations quite close. Exactly. That's that's what it would kind of point towards. But I would say that I haven't yet um, taken recordings from the entire activity period of a rat. They kind of they're active anywhere from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. Even yeah, unfortunately for me. Does this Norway rat share its territory, its home range with anybody else? Yeah, so we have a couple of ship rats um, further up the property. So far we haven't taken any recordings that would indicate an overlapping home range, but who knows. So you're going to keep coming out here for a few more months? A few more months till January, that's the idea. Um, we get getting progressively later slash earlier. So yeah, eventually I'm going to have their sleeping habits of a, of a rat, which... <laughs> Yeah, it isn't great for me. And by the end of it, you'll be able to plot up some maps and put all those points where you found them on a map and go, OK, so this one turned up in an area that seemed to be 50 square metres. This one seemed to have a home range that was only about 25 square metres, whatever those figures might turn out to be. Exactly. I'm also hoping to do some uh, fluorescent tracking as well to get some sort of fine-scale movement patterns. So how does that work? Um, so we basically alter a tracking tunnel put in some sort of brushes coated in fluorescent powder. The rats go in, um, get a good dusting with this powder, and then I come back uh, the following night with a UV light and I'm able to kind of track their exact movements. All right, so you'll see little glowing footprints running around. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 
None of the rats that you've put collars on have managed to have been trapped by anybody doing backyard trapping? Not so far, thankfully. Um, so we're actually in touch with some of the community trapping groups in the area. And they've stopped trapping for a while? Um, they're still trapping, but um, they're going to give me a heads up if they catch any of my rats. Well, that's an interesting exercise. If they're not catching your rats, it just shows that there's a lot of rats out there that aren't going into traps. Yeah, that's true. Um, and also, I guess my rats are going to be very trap shy from the experience they had when we collared them. Thanks, Henry. Henry McKenzie is a master's student at Victoria University of Wellington. We also heard from Stephen Hartley, who's director of the Centre of Biodiversity and Restoration Ecology at Victoria University, and Wellington Zoo vet Craig Pritchard. Kate Fakaronga mai kwe ki tato al horihori, he hotaka e panaki tato al fanui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is our changing world on RNZ. Now it's time for some chemistry business from the Elemental Podcast. Here's Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology with tantalum. Tantalum. Okay, so. This element was named after Tantalus, who was the father of Niobe, after who Niobium was named, if you recall that particular episode. And I'd have to say I'd always wondered where the word tantalising came from. So speaking of tantalising, Tantalus was condemned, in fact, to eternal hunger and thirst by the Greek gods. He had to stand in a lake under a fruit tree whose fruit he could see but it would move away from him when he reached for it. And similarly, the water around him would recede whenever he tried to drink it. Oh, it's making me feel thirsty. (laughs) You might think this is a bit rough. And why on earth did he get this particular punishment from the gods? The reason was because he actually served his son up to the gods for dinner. Right. Uh, they had some good stories, the uh, the Greeks, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> they did. But why did the element deserve to be named after Tantalum, since it hadn't served its son or even its daughter up for dinner? <laughs> this is slightly tenuous, I guess, but seemingly because the discoverer, the Swede Anders Eckerberg, thought that the element, quote, when placed in the midst of acids, is incapable of taking any of them up and saturating itself with them. So, as I say, tenuous connection there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, a little bit about tantalum. It is almost always found in combination with niobium. Uh, They are both in group five of the periodic table. And, uh, in fact, they are very, very difficult to separate. So, vital statistics. The chemical symbol tantalum TA... The atomic number is 73, and so that puts it sort of to the left-ish of the periodic table in amongst the transition metals, and it was discovered in the year 1802. Now, chemically, it's very, very inert, and in fact, it appears to have taken nearly 100 years since the identification of tantalum as a compound to obtain the pure metal. Crikey. So if it's so inert and joined at the hip with niobium, does it have any useful features? Mm, Well, like all elements, it's got something going for it. (laughs) So tantalum has the third highest melting point of all the metals. It's nearly 3,000 degrees. And this was, in fact, one of the reasons why it was tried as a filament for an incandescent light bulb in 1905. However, another metal which we have yet to meet, and I'm sure which everybody knows about, 
was found to be better. So tantalum was ditched in favour of that. Another thing that crops up a lot on Elemental, um, tantalum was used in the obligatory fountain pen nibs. Seems a lot of metals. Yes. (laughs) Uh, A lot of metals seem to have been, or a lot of elements, in fact, seem to have been used in fountain pen nibs. But, in fact, uh, tantalum's use was superseded by more precious metals. While alloys containing tantalum often find use in situations where you need strength, you need hardness, and you need corrosion resistance. So, for example, in things like nuclear reactors and jet engines and stuff like that. Very, very usefully, in fact, the metal is totally inert to bodily fluids and it's completely tolerated by the body. And so tantalum, in fact, finds a lot of use in both surgical instruments and implants. Despite these uses, tantalum's most important use, in fact, is in capacitors. These are electronic components that store charge. And tantalum capacitors are found in pretty much every electronic device. However, there is a catch. Which is what exactly? It was finally (laughs) starting to sound useful. Yes, well, it is. But the problem with the whole tantalum capacitor thing is where the tantalum actually derives from. So in the year 2000, 45% of the world's tantalum came from Australia. But in 2014, only 4% did. And so much of the world's tantalum now comes from Rwanda, which is okay, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not okay. Because of the latter country, the element tantalum has in fact been classified as a conflict mineral. And that's a mineral obtained from a conflict zone whose proceeds go to prolong the fighting. And the most common conflict minerals are in fact tin, tungsten and tantalum an alliterative trio, if you will. And all of these are mined in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And if I may uh, be political for a second, any time you have to put the word democratic in a name of a country, you can be very, very sure it probably isn't. Anyway, sorry, back to... (laughs) Back on track, sir. Back on track, yes, yes. So there's a thing called the Dodd-Frank Act in the USA, and that was initiated in 2010, and that required US companies such as Apple and Intel and HP and anybody else who might use tantalum to actually trace the source of their tantalum. Sad to say, the current president actually repealed some of this law last year. Okay, so chemically (laughs) useful, politically difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you think you could dredge up a final interesting fact about tantalum? (laughs) Okay, so a compound with the chemical formula TAC, otherwise known as tantalum carbide, has what is possibly the second highest melting point of any known material. And that's a melting point of 3,768 degrees Celsius. And that was measured by researchers at Imperial College London in the year 2016. And so this means that tantalum carbide has obvious uses in things like spacecraft heat shields. To space and beyond. Thanks to chemistry. And thanks to Alan. That was Alan Blackman in the Elemental podcast, which you can find on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. If you'd like to get in touch, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening, but until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.